Hi guys, welcome to the Premium Property Podcast. Today we have Tony Campbell on from Project Control Simplified and Tony is a project manager that is managing anything from small refurbishments to £400 million projects. So he's definitely an interesting guy and we're sure this is going to be an awesome interview. So welcome, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Awesome, awesome. So... For those who aren't aware of what you do or who you are, um, if you could tell us a bit about your background and just a bit about yourself, that would be awesome. Yeah, no problem. So I'm a quantity surveyor <coughs> by trade and now work as a project management consultant and I'm a specialist in successful project delivery. I started my career in construction um, about 15 years ago, delivering large-scale construction projects for the country's largest privately owned construction company, Lango Rourke, at that point. And in 2008, there was obviously a financial crash. And probably You two guys probably don't remember that. You're probably a bit too young. <laughs> um, and it really impacted commercial construction. So all big projects stopped where I was working in Liverpool, and I moved to a smaller-scale specialist industrial company delivering projects in pharmaceutical, oil and gas, nuclear, petrochem. Um, because those industries are less impacted by financial crashes because business continues as usual. And then in about 2013, I started a consultancy which offered large international organisations, project management and project control support. And then during that time, I have been involved in projects all the way up to $4 billion. That's the biggest project I've been involved in. Um, and now I teach project management and project control principles principles globally uh, to major companies and i help property developers and investors successfully plan control and deliver their projects yeah that's amazing <clears throat> sounds like you've got a really sort of good variety of experience there so yeah um we're definitely excited to learn from all your experience and hopefully our guests learn too so um in terms of like project management then and for the probably the first sort of thing you do with a project with estimating the costs and the time frames as well um for somebody like just starting a property how would they know and be able to estimate how long a refurb would take and how much it would cost yeah, no problem. So, I mean, there is a very short answer to that, and that's leverage someone with the professional skills. So that's going to be quickest and easiest route to doing it. But there is a longer answer, and I'll elaborate on that for you if you want me to. So the main thing to do in, in project management is to follow a set process, and that's a set process that somebody's defined before you and has implemented successfully on projects. So the process we follow the first thing you do is you need to define your scope because without defining your scope, you can never, ever properly estimate your time and cost. Um, so defining your scope starts with what's your project objective. Um, so what are you trying to achieve out of your project? That's the most important thing to do because without that, how can you know what scope you need? If you don't define your end point, how can you know how you're going to get there? So once you've defined that objective, you break the work down into chunks um, which we call the work breakdown structure. And then 
in that work breakdown structure, you start to specify what exactly it is that you want, and that needs to align with the project endpoint. And then after you've done that, you start quantifying the scope of work within each work breakdown structure item. Um, so it's breaking it down in a hierarchy, in a series, so you understand you're not going to miss any scope, um, and you're going to cover all the work that you need to do as part of the project. So the scope is the first thing you sort out. And then after that, the second thing is the schedule. So the schedule, you need to then take the work that you've identified and put it in a logical sequence of what happens out on site. So you put it in a logical sequence and then you estimate the durations that it'll take to do each individual item. And that may only be at high level if you don't have much experience, but you're going to be able to roughly estimate how long each item is going to take. So once you've done that, you've sorted your scope and your schedule. The final thing you move on to is your cost. So you structure your estimate, and I would suggest you structure it in line with your scope and your timeline. Um, and then what you do is you start estimating each individual item, but you've got to use an appropriate technique to estimate each item. So it might be high level if you don't have much information. But by high level, I mean a bit of a guesstimate. Um, if you've got a little bit more information, you may use a rate for each individual item, which can be determined from a rate book or your own experience or someone else's experience. And then finally, you can build it up bottom up from the detail. If you work out how much um, of a certain of labor plant and materials are required for each item, um, then you can build up your cost that way. And then finally, add some appropriate contingency. So it's important you follow those steps. First is scope. Second is the schedule or time scale. And then third is the estimate. Um, because without the scope, how can you know how long it's going to take? And those two things influence the cost. Yeah, awesome. So <clears throat> with the scope then, unlike, say, a standard refurbishment, is there like different, is there like standard stages for um a scope and if so what are those stages um yeah so every project will be slightly different but there are some kind of standards you can apply and this is why it's important you need to define your objective uh, because defining what you're doing with your project will ultimately influence the scope and by that i mean if you're doing a buy to let that's going to have slightly different scope than a flip um, because with a flip, you might try and add value to maximize the resale point. Whereas on a buy to let, you're going to do things efficiently to be able to tenant it and then refinance it. So understanding those things first and foremost is the most important thing. And then use your work breakdown structure, which is a standard list of items, which covers the entire project lifecycle, whether it's a new build or a refurbishment, and you pick the bits. So the most likely things you're going to be doing on property refurbishments is you're going to be upgrading the plumbing and heating systems. You're going to be upgrading the electrics. Um, you're going to be putting a new kitchen in. You're going to be putting a new bathroom in. And then you're going to do um, some internal finish work. So by that, I mean, you're probably going to plaster, you're going to paint, and you're going to put new flooring down. And that's really the limit of a scope of a refurbishment, um, unless you're adding extra space, in turn, and then you're gonna, maybe going to have to do a loft conversion or an extension. But it's key that you start, if you have a work breakdown structure at the beginning, you can use that work breakdown structure to 
piece your project together and it'll mean you don't miss scope because it's almost like a tick list you go through is this required on my project yeah awesome so is the work breakdown structure just a list of everything that could possibly need doing to the property and then you just sort of tick it off as you go along yeah in essence you completely right that's exactly what it is it's like a graphical <coughs> representation um so it's a it looks like blocks building blocks of a um of a project and then you just pick which one and uh, then as you said it's like a tick list you might go through if you're not doing any new construction work you're not going to need any substructure so any excavational foundations so that goes off the work breakdown structure but then in the work breakdown structure you're going to have items like internal finishes which has then got internal floor finishes internal wall finishes internal ceiling finishes so you're going to need all of those things in your refurbishment so yeah, you can use it like a tick list. It's really simple to use. And if you have a standard one, it means you can use it on every project. Yeah, brilliant. So <clears throat> for someone who is really new to property and they have no real idea about how long certain aspects or yeah, how long certain aspects or how much certain aspects um, cost, how would you sort of recommend them to learn about those things and is there any like specific websites or sources that you use um yeah so it depends how you break it down i mean first and foremost your first point of call should probably be a tradesman um in your local area maybe build a relationship with one and they will help you along your way but bear in mind that they're going to be offering this advice to you generally for free um, and they could be out earning money some other way doing that um the other way you could do it is go and get training in some form of project management um, and this will help you understand the process and then you might be able to get some standard rates from there there are standard rate pricing books that you can use like bcis or spons however there you have to pay for those two documents and they may not necessarily be applicable to refurbishments because generally i think the average project value that they're based around is about two million so they're not really going to be applicable to um a refurbishment project or even any sort of relatively large property project so you always have to be careful when you use those if you engage with a good quantity surveyor that could also help but that'll be a paid for service where they can help you define your scope um, and also help you build up a budget for what you're doing um, and any good consultants really should save you more money than they cost. Yeah, definitely. So would you say that it um, would be a good idea for someone who doesn't have much experience to work with a specialist like that? Or do you think it is possible on the smaller side of the refurbs to learn yourself? Yeah, I mean, you can learn yourself, but what will happen is you're going to make mistakes. Um, there's always the... When you do something for the first time it's called first of a kind and that's going to be the time where you learn the most and potentially that one time you learn could burn you so badly you never do it again so if you've got some underpinning skills and knowledge then potentially you might want to do it yourself especially if you understand the system of how to do it and underpin it properly and make sure you've got enough information so that you're limiting the chance of stuff going wrong you could potentially do that um my advice would definitely be go and get information and knowledge from people who 
know this information who do it day to day and um, because they will be invaluable source and they will help you on your journey it's anything in property you always go and try and find somebody who's at least one step ahead of you and try and learn from them i think this is the exact same situation with project management yeah exactly i think you can obviously learn a good amount from books but nothing beats speaking to the people who are out there and doing it and like you said yeah you're right so from books you're going to get some theory um, but the application of that theory is what you want the difficulty is that quite a lot of the theory is built around larger scale projects um, and then trying to apply the same principles to a smaller scale project you may become overwhelmed or potentially confused by the amount of information you've got to deliver yeah definitely so um, moving on to the more time frames of things so when estimating time frames would you say that it's important to like build in a contingency and if so how long yes yeah, so definitely so i'm glad you've asked that question because it's something that people miss quite a lot so usually when people are talking about contingency they're talking about financial contingency but they never really talk about time contingency but think about it a different way if you're allowing money to be spent when are you going to spend it because generally you're not going to spend that extra money in the same time scale as your project so for me um the contingency should definitely be developed in terms of financial and time contingency um but what you need to do is determine that contingency in line with a couple of principles. So first of all, you're going to have your uncertainty around the event. So everything in life is uncertain. Some things more uncertain than others. So you're going to have some contingency for uncertainty. You're also potentially going to have risk. So a one-off event that could happen, which you may need to allow contingency for. And then finally, you've got the other bit of risk, which you don't know, the unknown unknown, the thing you might find, but you don't know. So you need to allow contingency for that. Um, and as I said, that goes for both time and cost contingency for me. Um, you need to include both of them in your project. Yeah, so I'm guessing it, I'm guessing it almost differs between projects so if you've got a smaller project um the time scale is going to be a lot less whereas if you've got a bigger one it's going to be more as more problems could happen yeah so you're right i mean for smaller scale projects you are going to have a relatively short time scale you know for smaller scale refurbs you're going to be done within a couple of months um but you still need to allow for some contingency because some stuff will still go wrong um but the primary thing for me is you need to understand what your key project driver is so you may be constrained by cost on your project you may be constrained by time so let's talk about if you're on a bridge to let booked um, and your bridge is six months you may be constrained by time because your project is scheduled to be six months so then you need to make every decision you can to shorten the time scale not increase it Whereas if you're constrained by cost because you've got a fixed budget, your timescale may not be as important. So you can flex that timescale to suit. So it's important that you understand which one of those is applicable to your project. And that even goes for 10, 15 grand refurbs. Yeah, definitely. It sounds so important. And then when you're actually trying to work about work around the time frame, is it 
the builder that's responsible and can help you determine that or is it just solely down to you? Uh, so it depends really it can go both ways so you can set the time scale and suggest it to your trades or your builders or you can ask your builders to suggest the time scale and agree it with them it, like i said you can choose either route ideally the way we structure our projects is that we will create an overall schedule at the beginning which will have timing for each individual trade and then we'll ask each trade if the timescale we've allowed is realistic and if it is we'll agree to that if it's not we'll update it with their information and make sure they're happy with how it interfaces with other trades because those interfaces are where things are going to go wrong on your project yeah definitely um so what tips then would you give to someone who's trying to estimate um, maybe contingency costs and time but trying to get it as accurate as possible if that makes sense yeah, it does make uh, uh, complete sense. And I get asked this question a lot um, about how can you make the estimate or timescale as accurate as possible. And ultimately, how accurate an estimate or timescale is, is completely influenced by the data that goes in to the estimate or timescale. Um, so if you want it to be as accurate as possible, you have to put the effort in up front to make sure all the data that's going into the estimate timescale is as accurate as possible. So as we talked about a little bit earlier, define your scope properly at the beginning. That's the most important thing to do. Then you can build your timescale and then finally build your estimate. And what I'm trying to say is that if you guess a large portion of your work or your timescale, then you're going to be uncertain at the other end whereas if you spend a lot of time specifying exactly what you want getting quotes from manufacturers getting timescales from them getting quotes from builders getting quotes um, on the timescale from your trades then your output is going to be much more certain um, potentially not accurate but much more certain for what you want um, so that's the key thing is that the inputs define the output yeah, so I guess it's just about, well, it's just managing your time, really, and just working hard to find what fits best, if that makes sense. So, Yeah, like I said, it's about figuring out what you want and then understanding how you're going to get there. And that applies to how you're going to deliver something to. Sometimes you may not be able to get an accurate timescale or an accurate cost, and that's fine, provided you can live with holding the risk um, on your project and then you may want to deliver it in a slightly different way. Like, instead of getting a fixed quotation, um, it's getting a time and materials-based quotation and paying someone on the day rate. People say that you shouldn't do that because it's very risky, but it's not if that aligns with how your project is to be delivered. If you've set up in that way, then it's fine to deliver that way too. A lot of projects outside in industry are delivered in other ways than fixed prices yeah <clears throat> exactly so would that depend on like would the type of project delivery depend on um your budget and sort of how much you can manage the cash flow yeah so it, it depends on a lot of factors um you have to understand what you're trying to achieve with your project so if you start off by defining your objective and then understanding where you're going and start developing the design information 
your project should almost indicate to you which is the best methodology to choose. Um, what a lot of people do is get railroaded into the traditional way of delivering projects. Um, and then projects go wrong because they're not set up for it. So you may be, you may have a lot of risk in one area in your project, or you may be constrained by time or cost. And those things should ultimately determine which path you choose to deliver your project. So if you want the lowest cost, if you're constrained by money, you don't want to go fixed price because fixed price isn't the cheapest way of delivering a project. It gives you the most cost certainty because it's fixed for the scope, but it's not the cheapest because the contractor will be pricing risk into the price. So you need to understand all these things to be able to choose the right method to deliver your project. Yeah, awesome. So in terms of like going about getting quotes so you can estimate um, the cost for your project, say if you didn't have any builders that you'd worked with before um <clears throat> if if you like sent them a quote um ask them for a quote but you weren't sure you were going to get the project um how would you go about that so you don't waste their time essentially if that makes sense yeah definitely um it's a problem i see a lot with contractors is people use them as a pricing service um, for projects and ultimately um, if you're approaching three or four different builders you're going to waste maybe a day of the time coming on a site visit with you and then pricing the project for you um, and the, what that means is you're going to destroy any potential relationship you've got with them I think um, and a much better way to approach it is understand that process yourself so you can take on some of that risk and liability in delivering the project. You go out and you estimate the project yourself. You come up with a time scale that fits, and then you try and use that to deliver your project when you've got more information and you've secured it. Um, and that means then you go out to tender and get a quote back from the builder, which is actually based on scope. Yeah, exactly. And I take it if you were um, getting quotes from multiple builders, you could just um, compare them with your estimate and then get like a, a better figure, essentially. Yeah, so you come up with an initial estimate at the beginning um, when you are stacking your deal, which is basically a feasibility. Does this pass the giggle test? That's what we use it for. And if it does, you proceed to the next stage where you build up an initial estimate. Um, and Sorry, you build up a draft estimate. And that draft estimate is going to be built up using a bit more detail than you coming up with a high-level cost at the beginning. Um, and that's going to be potentially built up with quotations from a builder, but more than likely it's built up by you um, using some estimating methodologies. And then what you do is once you've defined your scope properly, you want to then go to a contractor for a quote. If you're approaching contractors um, with no information and asking them to give you a quote, what you're going to end up with is a variety of costs to do the project. Um, and it's it's not going to be something that you can actually convert into a quote, into a tender, sorry, convert into a contract to deliver the work with. Um, 
So my advice would be don't take builders round with you to go and look at projects you haven't secured um, because ultimately you're going to destroy any relationship you've got with them. Um, you want to be asking a builder for a quotation once you've worked out what you want and you've secured the project. So you've got to take that liability up front in pricing the work to make sure it's fit for purpose. Yeah, awesome. So in terms of actually designing the project then um for someone who is designing their first project what would you what is the starting point of design and is there a specific sort of area that you focus on first yeah so i mean as i've said before is you need well i haven't said this specific phrase before but for anything that you do on the project you need to start with the end in mind you need to figure out exactly it is what you want. And that's the objective of your project that we've talked about, because that's really the solid foundation to everything you do, because all your project decisions are made around that. And then you can use that as a starting point for your design. Um, what you'll need to do, though, is ensure that any designer you've worked with, that you work with, um, has delivered that type of project before. That's crucial. Um, you need to ensure that they're a specialist in that field. Um, for example, if you're doing a property refurbishment project and you're approaching a designer, you want to make sure that they don't focus that their specialism isn't commercial buildings because they're not going to have the skills that you want. Um, what you also want to do is make sure that whatever project it is isn't the biggest project they've ever done. Ideally, it wants to be. They've done projects of this nature a lot of times before, and they've done projects that are maybe twice or three times the size too, um, because then you're going to make sure that they understand fully what they're doing and that they can deliver what you want. What's most important, though, as with anything, is defining what you want them to do. So you want to make sure you understand what your expectations of that person are or that organisation and make that clear to them so when you get whatever it is back in return, it meets your expectations. Um, and you can, if it doesn't, you can tell them the reasons why and you've got something to base that around. That's probably one of the most important things that you need to do. Yeah, awesome. So the word design gets used in a lot of different ways. So what does designing a project actually consist of? Is it just like the interior side of things? Is it the layout or... Is it all of those, but they just come at different stages in the project? Yeah, so it is all of those things. Um, design encompasses anything which is related to drawings or modifying any information to be able to construct a project. Um, so this is design is also defined in the CDM regulations, um, designers and principal designers. And what that means is that it can be anything specifying equipment or materials, creating a bill of quantities or a schedule of works, deciding where you want plug sockets to go, drawing layouts like an architect would, doing structural calculations like a structural engineer would, and anything in between all of those things is classed as design. So design really starts when you decide your project objective because that feeds into the design process. And then it can run all the way through the project, even into construction, especially if you're still choosing what things are going to be installed in your project at that point, because that's all classed as design. Um, and then 
you as a client will be take will be making design decisions um you'll also potentially have designers involved in your project who'll be making design de- design decisions and then also the contractor will be too if they're changing or modifying anything on the drawn information or specifications yeah awesome so with what if you're working with a designer then um say for just a, a standard sort of refurbishment um would you need a designer and if so could you just get a designer that can do every aspect of it uh, yeah so it depends on the work that you need doing but the reality is under the cdm regulations as the client if it's your project you need to appoint somebody to take on the role of designer um within your project and if you don't you retain that responsibility and for me you need to ensure that that person's suitably qualified and experienced to be able to do the design Um, and then it's up to you really how much of that you want to give to a designer to do and it depends all on what you're doing so if you're changing layouts you may potentially need the designer to do that if there's some structural modifications you'll need the designer to do that but then in terms of finishes um, potentially you might not need a designer to be able to do those for you. Kitchen layouts can be designed by a kitchen company. And then the internal finishes, so the paint, the carpet, where the sockets go, can be defined by you, um, provided that your end objective. There's no problem with that. Um, but it's always worth bearing in mind that the CDM regulations place legal requirements on you as a client and you need to effectively discharge those requirements. And one of those requirements is appointing a designer. Um, and likewise, it is appointing a contractor. Yeah, so say that, obviously, if you're doing like a more a finishing type of thing, obviously, you don't really need a designer. In, but um, say you, you've not really got that creativity or that designing background, and you do decide to get a designer in, um, how would you go about getting what you want? Would you just tell them what you're looking for and then they just go out and find it or would you show them pictures of different projects you like um yeah so for small scale refurbishment projects i don't want to hark back to it but you probably need to think about what your objective is because in that objective you're going to define who you're targeting so when you're doing say a buy to let refurbishments you're going to probably be targeting a working class family or you're going to be targeting potentially um a DSS tenant and what you need to do is make sure that the end point of your project aligns with what um, that person would expect so you need to ensure that you don't over specify your project because you're going to spend too much money delivering the outcome that you desire Um, but then you've also got to make sure that you do it in such a way that you maximize potentially the revaluation or the resale value but those things start right at the beginning by defining your objective and working out who your ideal avatar is so you the target market and their demographic um, and then working out what your exit is whether it's to hold or to sell because that'll have slightly different things that you need to do in the finishes um as well your demographic because if you're targeting a family they're going to want different things than young professionals will um and then what you want to do potentially a good idea is to go and have a look around a local show home 
of a relatively reasonably priced new build because the companies like that will spend millions on understanding what the trends are. You could go in there and copy those trends into your project and then you'll be hitting on what people are what the market research says people desire in their property. Yeah, no, that's that that that's a good tip actually. So like like you were saying at the start, it's all about working backwards with your tenants in mind. Yeah. Figure out what it is that you're trying to deliver. Um, that's the most important thing. When you go on a journey, you always know where you're going most of the time unless you're going on an aimless journey. Um, and by knowing where you're going, you understand the best route to get there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, the project is all designed and you have a good estimate of like the scope and costs. Is that when you send it out for like a tender? or? Yeah, potentially. So. That's a traditional way of tendering. Um, you wait until all your design is complete. Um, at that point, you will have made a decent estimate of the cost and time scale, and then you approach the market for a price back for the scope that you've designed, especially if you go into one contractor to deliver your whole project. But it's also applicable if you go into individual contractors to deliver your project, and then you'd appoint a project or construction manager to deliver that but i'm a firm believer in challenging that traditional process because that traditional process might not actually be the best thing for your project Um, and that's what we talked about before in that sometimes you have to determine what's the best thing for your project depending on what your project looks like and i can give you an example if you are doing a construction project and there's a lot of risk in the ground you don't want to give that package to the main contractor to deliver because when he hits that problem, you're paying for that main contractor's delay rather than just an individual trade's delay. So you need to understand that. It's like if you're doing a refurbishment project and you need to strip out first, you want to let that strip out separate to the main contract or the other contracts so you can strip out, see what you're dealing with move forward with your project with that information yeah so with the um obviously you touched on the rip out there and um having it separate from other contracts so would you um get like a separate tradesman in to do the rip out specifically and then once you know exactly what needs doing then you can um get the contract with the like a the main sort of general builder or contractor if you're using them yeah so usually that's best practice because it removes risk from you as the client it obviously depends on what your key constraint is so if you're constrained by schedule and you need to get started as soon albeit you could challenge the fact that if you strip out first and then you work out what's there and then you employ a main contractor to deliver the rest that may technically be quicker than letting somebody go in and rip it out and dealing with the problems that come out the back of it so i would definitely advocate doing things like that the same with when you're building projects from below ground you might want to think about separating the groundworks package from the main contract but it all really depends on the risk that you face on the project and your delivery constraints that you've got whether that be time cost and um, scope or quality so one of those things will be constraining your project um, and you need to make that decision based on that information okay brilliant so 
could you have it so if you've spoken to the contractor and say they're they're comfortable with doing the re, um the rip out themselves um and then you'll just discuss what needs doing afterwards do you think you could do it that way if you're um if you were constrained by time say definitely so what you can do is then you can place a break clause in the contract so you let a contract solely just for the rip out um so what you do in that case let's talk about in a actual contracting mechanism you might ask the contractor for a fixed price for doing the rip out and then to give you like a target cost potentially for the rest of the works once so you know how much your total liability is then you deliver the rip out on the fixed price you'd find out what there was and then you'd ask the contractor to update the price to a fixed price taking into account what they'd found in the rip out um, and then let that secondary contract on top so it's almost like you let a contract for the rip out with an option of the main work and then you firm up the main work once the rip out's been done yeah that's a great um great way to do it so would you advise that it's always best on a refurbishment to do a rip out just so you can um establish if there is any like major works that do need doing uh, yeah, so more than likely you're always going to be ripping out on a project before you start, um, whether that just be ripping out the kitchen and the bathroom or it's going to be hacking all the plaster off and going back to brick. Um, the main thing I want to add in before you start doing any rip out is you need to make sure that you've done all the applicable surveys. And by that, I mean you probably need to be doing an asbestos survey on every project that you do because you need to understand if that risk is present on site because you've got a duty to inform the contractors who are working there if that risk is present because if they uncover asbestos, um, there's a potential that your project's going to be stopped while they have to remediate it. Um, and sometimes the best option might be to understand where it is and leave it where it is and encapsulate it so you don't have to take it out and pay for that cost. But you need to understand that before you start a rip-out. The first thing we do on all of our rip-out projects is to go in and do an asbestos survey before any work starts, and then we instruct the rip-out, which is done, and then the individual trades go in and do their own bit. But that's because we can project manage the, the refurbishments. Um, you might want to just choose to use a single contractor who will manage it on your behalf. Yeah, awesome. So obviously, when you're getting your asbestos survey, would you have already um, spoken to builders about pricing up your project? Um, or would you wait until you have the survey done and then send it out to tender? Uh, yeah, it depends. So it depends what the... So you can already be talking to builders um, and getting quotations during this time period. Uh, there's no reason you can't. We typically don't because we try and plan the asbestos survey in advance of us needing the builders on site and the tenders out. Um, so what we'll do is, what you can do is go and speak to the builders and then make sure you give them the results of the asbestos survey before you get a fixed quote off them. Um, or you can get it done up front and then work out what you're going to do with the asbestos, what the best scenario is either you have to take it out or leave it in situ um, and then you go to tender based on that 
But like I said, we tend to let individual trade packages. So provided we can get the trades in as and when we need them, the tenders are generally staggered through the process because we're not going to be tendering the painting at the very beginning because we don't need it. Yeah, awesome. So obviously we've sort of covered a lot more since we spoke about tendering originally. But um, for those who aren't familiar with the term, what is the process of tendering and um, how do you tender a project essentially? Uh, Yeah, so there are a couple of things that are probably encompassed by the word tendering. So we'll start with the simpler ones, which is a request for a quotation which is where you're basically just asking a builder for a quote to do some work. Um, and you give them a scope and they provide you a quote back. And it's that simple in that you give them some information to quote against and they give you a quote back. Um, there's also something called a request for a price, which is relatively similar. But what you're doing generally there is you're asking for a price for materials. So you write down what you want and then you get a quote for the materials. Go into tenders a little bit more detailed than that. Um, or in that you have to write an invitation to tender. So in that invitation to tender, you have a lot of information that all gets compiled together and is then sent out to the parties who you want to quote for your works to return a tender. Um, Then you can have a tender period, which is a defined period of time that you're giving the builders or contractors to quote, to analyse the information and work out a price for doing the work. Um, that can be anywhere from a week to eight, nine weeks, depending on the size and complexity of your project. But for refurbs, it's going to be two, three weeks, somewhere around that. Um, then you're going to get tender returns back, which is all the the people who are returning a tender, sending them back. Um, and then you have to reconcile the tenders, so compare them against each other, um, and then enter into negotiation with one or more than one of the people who've returned a tender and then you move from there into contract award where you award a contract based on the tender you've received so that's a tendering process in a nutshell um the tendering process does vary depending on which contractual mechanism you choose but in essence it all falls within that high level um process that i've just described brilliant so would you say that tendering is more common on the bigger scale projects or does it still happen on the on like smaller scale refurbs? Um, so, yeah, tendering really is probably limited to larger scale projects. But by larger scale, I mean things that are maybe 100K plus. That's when you'd start implementing this process. For smaller scale refurbs, you might just want to go down the request for a quotation and um, specifically if you just go into trade contractors you don't want to be sending them a full tender pack because they're not going to know what to do with it if you're engaging with contractors um to deliver the whole scope for you and you're going to approach three or four of them you may want to provide a tender a formal tender and um, it's completely up to you really which route you choose and um, you just got to make sure that the contract is a comfortable price in the tender because some of them may never have seen one before yeah okay so i'll take it um if you just are requesting a quote you just sort of send them the schedule of works and then they'd quote from there 
Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, there are some other things you need to provide. Um, so as part of the CDM regulations, you need to provide the pre-construction information. So this is any information that you've got about the pro- about the project that you're undertaking um, and any um, existing information that's available. So like the asbestos survey, potentially um, where the, it's located, any site restrictions uh, you want to send them any design that you've done, so any specifications and then any physical drawings you've produced, um, and then your bill of quants or schedule of works that you want to send that to. So you want to give them as much information as you can about because then they'll be able to give you the most accurate price um, because if you don't tell them about something when they're giving you a quotation and then you introduce it later on before you're about to go into contract with them or even worse, after that, don't be surprised if they vary the cost because any commercially savvy contractor should be doing that. Yeah. Okay. So with, so say if you are like inexperienced and you do make a mistake and miss something out um, and don't send it to a contractor, if that did arise during the project, for example, would you just have to discuss it with them then and figure out the best way to go around it or would you sort of arrange a way to deal with it before you go into the contract uh, so things do happen but i'm not going to pretend they don't and stuff does go wrong on projects the best thing to do is just be upfront and honest about it if you've missed something then tell them have a conversation with them the most important thing for me is that if you have missed something like a piece of scope or something that's going to impact the cost or the schedule is just ask them to estimate how much both of those are going to be the cost and the schedule and then instruct it as a variation and um, because that's the most effective way of doing it you don't want to wait until it's too late tell them to do it don't give them an instruction don't get a price back and then at the end of the project they come back and say oh by the way this is going to cost you however much it is and it's three or four times more than you expected it to be in the first place just be upfront and honest ask them to price it and what impact it's going to have on the project then just instruct it as a variation um, like I said things will change on your project you're always going to have changes to what you originally wanted you just want them to be small enough that they don't really impact the overall project yeah definitely so I guess you just sort of like you said being honest so you can get that the most accurate sort of price for the work that needs doing and then you can plan for it accordingly yeah you're exactly right so planning's really important in projects as you can tell by the process i've talked through um ensuring you've got a proper plan and that's a plan for everything not just your schedule is really important and that's how you're going to set your project up for success you spend all the effort doing everything before you go to site because that's when it doesn't cost much to change and it doesn't cost much to do if you start changing things left right and center when you're out on site that's just going to end in disaster and your time scale and your cost will go out the window yeah exactly so with planning then um say for a just a like a a standard refurb is there like a a good amount of time to spend planning the project or does it just completely depend uh yeah so i would say what you want to do is you want we want what we call a minimum viable product so you want to spend 
the least effort you can to get the maximum benefit. So you want to spend as much time as you've got available to deliver it. But what you don't want to be doing is delaying the start of your project and um, just because you want to spend more time and effort up front. Think about it like the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. So 80% of all of the items that you need to sort out is 20% of the work. So make sure you do all of that up front and make sure that you put all of the effort into those big ticket items. It's the same with estimating in that 80% of your cost will sit in 20% of the items. Um, you In your schedule, you're going to have a critical path, the thing that's the longest path through the project. If it gets delayed one day, it delays your overall project one day. You need to focus the effort in these areas, not on the surrounding stuff. That doesn't particularly matter. So you need to understand what those items are and then put your effort into planning those um, because that will give you the maximum benefit with the minimum effort. That makes sense. Like I said, at the beginning of your project, you don't need to waste time planning what carpet finish you're going to have particularly or what paint finish you're going to have. You need to do the most important things like defining the rip out, um, defining if you need to do electrics or plumbing work, because this is what will start first. And then you can do it as a rolling wave and start planning those things a little bit later. Yeah, definitely. How would you so say you've, you've got um, a few builders and they've all quoted you? How would you decide what builder to pick once they have all quoted you, if that makes sense? Yeah, so that's a good question, and we do get asked this a lot too um, because it's difficult choosing between contractors. So for me, it depends if you pre-qualified any contractors or not up front, um, but we'll park that for a minute, and I'll just tell you about how I go about um, analysing which contractor to go with. So you want to do it on a number of criteria. Um, and these will depend on what's really important to you on your project. But for me, what I normally do is there's four criteria I look at. So past experience is a really big one. So what have they done before? What projects are they similar to what you're doing? And have they got good references? Because that's to me, is more important than most other things. Um, so you want to think about that as part of your evaluation. Then cost, obviously. So analyse the costs of the tenders, and that wants to play a part in your decision-making. Then you schedule. So what timescales have they quoted to deliver the work? Does it align with your timescales? That's another area to score them against. And then finally, the health and safety record. So you can find out if anybody's had any improvements or prohibition notices placed on them by the health and safety executive. So I'd start and do some due diligence there. Um, if they have had issues in the past, I'd ask them how they're resolving them and how they're working through that. And if there was a reason for those things happening, because people make mistakes and can always improve. So in those four areas, I would weight them differently. So I might weight 40% to past experience. I might weight 20% to cost, 20% to schedule, and then 20% to health and safety. But it depends on what's important for you. Because the last thing you want is to give the quote to somebody who's the cheapest but has never done what you want them to do before because that's going to end in disaster. Yeah, I was going to say, likewise, you don't want to give it to them for you, but you may want to give it to the most expensive contractor if they've got the best past experience, they've got no health and safety blemishes, and it fits within your scheduled duration. So people often choose tenders 
based on cost and that's one way for your project to fail i see it a lot see it out in industry and um, projects doubling in cost because the tender has been chosen on the lowest cost possible um, and these are big scale projects so 20 to 40 million um, but just think if you had a 20 grand refurb and it doubled to 40 grand it's going to destroy your project you're going to probably not make any money on the back end of it whether you exit or you sell uh, sorry whether you hold or you sell so you need to bear these in mind yeah definitely so as like a case study for example say um a project they were trying to reduce the amount of costs and then going back to what you was talking about so say um some builders they charge lower but they've got fewer experience or they could go for a more expensive builder with like a lot more experience would that differ your opinion or would you just go for the higher because they're more like got a better reputation yeah it's a difficult one really because it depends obviously how much over budget it is but then you've also got to balance the fact that just because they're the cheapest at tender doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the cheapest at the end and um, because if they've missed stuff out the pricing and assumed or excluded things from their tender which you don't notice um that's just going to result in variations which means the cost goes up or you delay them on site and then they ask variations. So there's a multitude of things you need to understand and deliver. So for me, I'd be asking about the past projects. I'd be asking for references. So what was the starting price? What was the end price? And if they're both they're the same and they're cheaper and they've got less experience, but they can still deliver the work, then for me, that gives them an extra tick in the box. And you think, okay, maybe they are just slightly cheaper. Um, if it's the other way around, obviously, then I'd be going to the more expensive contractor. But for, if you want to save money delivering a project, if lowest cost is your key driver, don't go to a single contractor. Um, what you want to do is go to trade contractors and either project manage it yourself if you've got the experience or employ the best construction manager you can physically afford to pay for in the project and let them deliver it for you because they'll they'll save you more money than they cost and they'll be able to deliver it cheaper than going to a single contractor. Yeah, definitely. And then, so for the builders that you're not going to use, so say you've picked the builder you're going to use, but the remaining few that you're not going to use, how would you word it to them that you're not going to use them so you can still obtain a good relationship, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does definitely. And I mean, this is the unfortunate thing that happens in construction. So for me, just be honest with them. Give them the honest feedback of why they weren't selected um, because that will help your relationship with them. If they see you're open and honest, then hopefully they might understand your reasoning and be completely transparent with them. So if they've not won the project because they were more expensive, tell them. If they've not won the project because they didn't have the right past experience, tell them. It would just be completely open and honest. Um, you are going to run the risk, though, that your unsuccessful contractors won't want to work with you again because, as I said, they don't want to be seen as a pricing service um, and they're spending time and effort pricing projects with no actual return and they can't make any money doing that. But what I'd say is if you're delivering more than one project, if they were close, 
to winning the project is maybe give them a little bit more of a weighted opportunity of delivering the next one for you. Because the last thing you want to do is put all your eggs in one basket with one contractor. Because if that contract goes wrong and they walk off site, you're still going to need somebody to come and pick up the pieces and deliver the project for you. Yeah, exactly. So I guess you're just trying to give them the incentive to not just sort of tarnish the relationship, but you're saying that we, I still think there could be potential to work together in the future, essentially. Yeah, you're right. So for me, I'd always try and have a pre-selected bunch of contractors um, that you're going to use. And what you'll have done is your due diligence on them up front. Um, so you make sure they're suitable for you and the type of projects that you're going to deliver. Um, and then you maybe have three of those contractors which you use to deliver your projects. Um, and then you just you can maintain that relationship with them then because you know they're all capable of delivering because you've pre-qualified them. Um, and then basically you're just going to choose each one on cost each time. And then if one contract is consistently the cheapest, then you may want to think about building just a relationship with that one contractor. Yeah, okay, awesome. So would you just qualify them by the standard sort of way to qualify a builder so obviously have a meeting look at their previous work speak to previous clients and just go through that process uh yeah so there's a set pre-qualification criteria that we use which i can talk you through if you want so first we look at the company structure so have they got any parents or affiliate companies that seem a bit strange you just want to do some more due diligence into have they got any struck off directors what was the reason for that are they VAT registered? Because that might impact your selection of them on a certain project, depending on the size of it. Then you want to look at the past experience, as you touched on there. So how long have they been trading? And um, What's their experience of the workforce too? Because they may have only been trading for six months, but the people in the company could have been delivering projects for 20 years. So you might have to look a bit deeper than just the company trading history. And then past projects and testimonials. They speak volumes for a company so then the next thing you want to look at is size so how many employees have they got what's the turnover and what's the financial stability and um, because you just want to run a credit check probably on a contractor you're employing if it's a single contractor because the last thing you want is them going into liquidation on your contract and um, turnover is really key because for me i don't give contracts to contractors unless they have a turnover three or four times bigger than the project because you don't want to give someone the biggest contract that they've got, which means you can still deliver 20 grand refurbs, 25 grand refurbs with non-VAT registered companies because their turnover will be around 80K. And then the final thing is what we touched on before is the health and safety. So you can look on the HSE website and see if they've had any improvements or prohibition notices and then you want to ask them for their accident statistics because if they have quite a lot of minor accidents that or minor incidents and injuries or near misses, then that's an indicator that they've got health and safety issues and health and safety culture that's not very good um, and potentially could result in a more serious injury. And you, the last thing you want is someone to get injured on your construction site. Yeah, awesome. So moving towards the end of the interview then if you could go back and give 
your younger self or just yourself before you got into property um three top tips what would they be yeah so the first one network more so i didn't particularly like networking when i first started doing it and i didn't really see its value but now i definitely understand its value it's vital to build on any relationships with people um i've actually been amazed with the number of contact contacts i've got from networking people i can call on in any situation who'll be able to help me in different situations but that doesn't necessarily just mean attending networking events it means just meeting up with other people local to you and um, because there'll be people who are in similar situation to you in within a five or ten mile radius and it's good to find those people and create a network with them because you never know when you're going to need to call on them the second thing is education uh, that's vital so get yourself around people who are slightly ahead of you and people who are much further ahead of you because you'll learn a lot from both of those people. And then also don't be afraid to pay for education, um, provided it's a skill you shorten. But what I would say is to myself, resist the shiny penny and the get rich quick schemes because you're probably going to be disappointed. You see a lot of education programs i promise you six figures that financial freedom this and the reality is that most of it's not true um and i mean you could achieve it but you're not going to achieve it in the time scales you want and then the last thing is just do it just get out there and do it don't waste time looking for perfect deals because they don't exist i spent a lot of time at the beginning of my property journey looking for deals where you get all your money back out but they just don't happen what you need to work out is what you want. Do you want cash flow or do you want capital appreciation or a mixture of them both and stick to it until you're successful. Um, you know, the acronym FOCUS, follow one course until successful and then move on to something else. Don't try and do everything at once um, because you just become overwhelmed and then you become disheartened. Um, the best thing I ever did was focusing on one thing for a period of time getting it working, getting money coming in from it and then moving on to the next. Yeah, definitely. There's some great tips, especially that last one, because I think you can just sort of, you can get overwhelmed by all the sort of different strategies in property. So it's important to hone in on one and master that. And then you can potentially look at doing some other strategies. Yeah, definitely. Don't procrastinate over one. Choose the one that's most fitting to what you want out of property at that point in time. And I'd advise people when they're starting is go for a cash flowing strategy. Um, so you get cash flow coming in and then you can, after that, move on to building an asset base. But the first thing I would advise everyone to, anyone to do in property is start with cash flow. Yeah, awesome. So finally then is there any special mentions that you want to give to anyone yeah um so i've got quite a few so bear with me so first you two for inviting me on this podcast because it's been an absolute honor and i've really enjoyed it second i suppose i best thank my wife for allowing me to pursue all my ambitions and setting up all my own businesses Next, my business partner at salvers property chris streeter so that's our deal packaging company that we've got and then finally, everybody else who have met on my journey um, and who support me, but more specifically, Dave Goodfellow at Iconic Service Accommodation and Scott Williams at Amplo Property Group. Yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, thanks for the special mention, obviously. It's been great to have you on. And yeah, we really think 
um, you've got some re- great specialist knowledge and um, we really think people will learn a lot from all the tips you've given today. So, yeah, thank you for coming on, Tony. Really appreciate it. All right, thanks for having me. Awesome. So we hope you guys enjoyed listening today and have taken a lot away from Tony. And, yeah, we hope you've really enjoyed it. And if you have, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. Um, It just helps us get the podcast out there more. And, yeah, that would be awesome. So, yeah, hope you've enjoyed it once again. And we'll see you next week for another one. Thanks, guys.